Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, Elephant Earth by Gabriel Barclay. Uh, we're pretty sure, or at least I'm pretty sure, this is by Manly Wade Wellman. Uh, the reason I think it's by Manly Wade Wellman rather than Gabriel Barclay is Gabriel Barclay is a pseudonym used by a uh, few people, including uh, Manly Wade Wellman and uh, C.M. Cornbluth, and I think there was one other person. Uh, oh no, just them, just them both. <laughs> so um, I think I've read C.M. Cornbluth, but, but they didn't use it together. No, no, it's. Uh, I, I think. I think. I, I'm not 100% sure on this. Here's why. This is in a magazine called Ast- uh, Astonishing Stories. Or Astonishing. Yeah, Astonishing Stories. Uh, uh, for, when I was young and foolish, I thought Astonishing Astounding were the same magazine. I, I somehow conflated the two of them. So I would see the logos and think that it was the same magazine because they both started with A. I, I know it doesn't make a lot of sense. But Astonishing was its own magazine, and it's not uh, well represented in scans. Um, this magazine, further, is not well represented in on the internet. So there is a scan of it, which is where I got this from. This story is, has seemingly never been republished, um, which means I'm going based on the fact that... Uh, yeah, it, it has never been republished. I'm going based on the fact that um, Frederick Pohl was the editor. Somebody on ISFDV has determined this is by Manly Wade Wellman. So perhaps there's a letter that admits this. Um, we don't we don't have the background information, but I know Manly Wade Wellman fairly well, and I also know, as in their writing style, and I also know uh, C.M. Cornblue's writing style fairly well. And uh, this magazine used a lot of pseudonyms or house names um, when, for whatever reason. And there's maybe a couple reasons why. Uh, One reason you do that is because you've got uh, six stories in a magazine, for example, and two of them are by the same author. And when the person's at the newsstand, what if you don't like that author? Well, there's five Mm -hmm. others, right? So uh, there, uh, this happens to be the case that, uh, like, Silverberg once wrote a whole issue of a magazine, like every story, and they're all different pseudonyms. I think one of them might have been Silverberg. Um, other, to- other situations that happens is um, people are s- 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 uh, editors want people to be exclusive. So Heinlein um, was mostly astounding. And when he wasn't, he was doing it for other uh, magazines edited by John W. Campbell. And uh, when you've got those exclusivity sort of agreements, you can't publish, otherwise the guy will know. So you still get a check for selling stories to other markets, and this happens a little bit. So I don't really know why this is uh, definitely by Manly Wade Wellman versus uh, C.M. Cornbluth, but that's my logic behind it and it, it's got a lot of elephants in it eric and he was born in africa <laughs> ah. manly made woman was born in africa what it, what we would now call angola it was uh portuguese west africa i think 
is what it was called yeah. when he was born. Although I think this, I think this is Indian elephants, but but unclear. Well, I have my I have my reasons, right. but I, just just to make sure that everybody can follow what you said, I do want to say ISFTB, which you referenced as a scholarly source for you. And using this, that's the Internet Science Fiction Database, mm-hmm. which is really very very well supported, um, and was anyway. So that's that's it's it's very good, um, and I do think it's worth making a distinction between. A, a pseudonym and a house name. Yes. Um, right. A house name belongs to the publisher, and the publisher can decide to put that on the work of anybody. So um, Victor Appleton is mm-hmm. the house name that's used for all of the uh, the Tom Swift books. And by now, Victor Appleton would be 180 years old, but they still come out. You know, Edward Stratemeyer was the original Victor Appleton, but then he. He subcontracted. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and 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 that turns out to be true. I mean, house names are useful because the name of the author becomes a brand. Tom Clancy is still publishing, my friend. Long indeed, dead, as is Arthur C. As is Arthur C. Clarke. That's crazy. Um, that, yeah, it's uh, so you can buy the name and then you can use. But in the case of Tom Clancy and Arthur C. Clarke, um, they actually were living people and their names carried on. Mm-hmm. Um, Ellery Queen was originally two relatives, uh, I think brothers-in-law, who published jointly mm. under that name. It wasn't either of their names. And then when one of them died, Ellery Queen continued mm-hmm. with the survivor. Um, this, this is that. So that's a pseudonym. And Ellery Queen could have been could have popped up anywhere, in any publication. Whereas a house name, that's part of the copyright of that the publisher holds. And so, if Gabriel Barclay is a house name for astonishing stories, no one, whether it's Manly Wade Wellman or um, or C.M. Cornbluth or anybody else, no one can use that name if astonishing stories doesn't say, and you're going to be published under this name at the moment. Um, So that's a little different. And I liked your analysis about wanting the the person at the newsstand to say, oh, wait a minute, all of this this whole issue is by by Farmer or, sorry, Silverberg? Um, No, I don't want to do that. So the publisher has a strong reason for wanting to use sometimes a pseudonym, pushes it onto the author or a house name. The authors want pseudonyms so that they can sell more than one thing to a market. Or sometimes, as with Stephen King, they want to have a second line of of work and they're afraid of flooding the market with their own names. Um, So, yeah, these are different. The question is, who who holds the purse strings? Mm -hmm. In the case of Astonishing Stories... It's the publisher who holds the case string, purse strings. That's what I think you're telling us. Yeah. And as far as um, uh, this ho- this particular house name or pseudonym, whichever it is, um, it is only been used one, one other time. And that was in a poem in a different magazine, Super Science Stories in the same year. Probably the same publisher. I, I'm, I'm going by memory. I think it is the same publisher. Fictioneers. Uh, bi-monthly by fictioners these are these are sort of less less popular than the astoundings and amazings of the 1940s but yeah this story um i gotta tell you eric the reasons i wanted to process this whole magazine is because elephant earth sounded awesome 
And uh, this story is a little too long for us to read, but I want to read some sections out from it. But before we do that, would you uh, sort of tell everybody what it's about and what happens in it? Yeah, I'd like to like to have read some sections because the flavor of it is good, and I think it bears on the question of why this might be published pseudonymously. Mm. Um, so, Elephant Earth by somebody, maybe Manly Wade Wellman, but officially Gabriel Barclay, is a 1940 publication that begins with an editorial comment. Mm saying when all the living men had died, a dead man came to life again and found the world ruled by elephants. And then there's a nifty illustration mm. that shows a man in uh, tattered pants standing in front of a group of three elephants who are looking in his direction mostly, and in the background, a rocket ship looking like it's ready to take off. Uh, the kind that goes off at a 30-degree angle the way rocket ships in science fiction magazines of the 1930s did, mm -hmm. uh, or 1940s, in this case, 1940. So then having gotten all of this stuff before we begin, we start with the story. At first, when I woke up, my attention was caught wholly by the odd fact that elephants were carrying me. It was not for 10 minutes or more after I awakened that I remembered I hadn't been asleep. I had been dead. And so our narrator wakes up into this world, which turns out to be a far future world. We don't know how far in which, in fact, um, he comes to recognize that he is the the he's been reanimated. We find out how he was reanimated. It turns out he was the um, subject of a scientist who was trying to prove the possibility of reanimation. But sometime between the time he was executed wrongly, that is for a crime he didn't commit, um, and he is reanimated, um, all of humanity has died, probably by a plague, except we're told early on six rocket ships had left for Venus. And in the course of most of this story, our fellow is communicating with elephants. He first has to learn they can write. Then he and this main uh, interlocutor, um, Arup, um, learn to talk to each other. But their vocal apparatuses don't make that all that good. But that works out. And uh, it looks like the elephants want to use him uh, for example he's got such terrific hands you know an elephant's trunk is good but it's not that delicate they may want to make a slave out of him forever or they may want to just vivisect him in order to find out how he ticks not a, not a good possibility um, but since he is the last man in the world um, and they can't use him for procreation. So, you know, they're going to have to do something with him before he croaks. Um, but Arup and a couple of others decide to help him escape. And when we, when we leave him, he has taken the rocket, which the elephants have apparently built, and he has landed on Venus, where apparently those rockets from ages ago had landed. And at the end... Um, he opens the opens the hatch, comes out, and then he finds. Um, well, you probably that's one of the sections you want to read. Yeah. So maybe I won't say it. Right. But along the way, what's crucial is that the elephants, smart though they are, 
um, have mistaken in reading the literature of human beings, uh, have mistaken Tarzan, Sherlock Holmes, and Robinson Crusoe, all people that they radically admire. Tarzan, because he understands the importance of the natural world, Sherlock Holmes, because of his terrific deductive capabilities, and Robinson Crusoe, because he is so good at adapting and surviving, Um, all things that are useful, apparently, in elephant society, they have mistaken those three paragons, from their viewpoint of human culture, as real people. So part of what's going on here is the story is sort of asking us to think, um, what are we supposed to make of stories? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I love this story, um, probably more than it <laughs> deserves. Um, but the reason I love it is because as soon as I saw it and I saw what it was about, I thought, this is Planet of the Apes, except Planet of the Elephants. Um, because that's pretty much how, if you remember the movie, and it's based on a book as well, um, I believe the French original uh, is Monkey Planet. Um, it's called Planet it's, of the Apes right. in English. Um, right. more it's common. Planet des Sanges. Right. Right. But right. It's I, I, I love conflating monkeys and apes because it's silly, because I know the difference between them, but um, it's what they do to... <laughs> he does in this story, too. Um So uh, I want to read this section. This is on page 55, the second page, um, because it's just so well done. Listen to this. Um, I was riding in a sort of hammock or litter swung between them, uh, swung between them. Uh, We're part of a long parade. I saw a long column of wrinkled back, serpentine trunks, lettuce leaf ears, and not a mahout among them. That much I took in before a trunk tip shoved me down on the bottom of my, car- of my carrier. An elephantine squeal counseled that I lie still. I lifted my hand to my throat. Something hung there, a tablet of lead. I jerked at it, and the supporting wire broke. I held it up and gazed at the stamped letters. To the opener of this sealed vault, you see here a number of records and articles of the 20th century. This tablet lies upon the breast of a living man treated chemically to suspend animation when fresh air enters the vault he will awaken let him tell you of the fu- you of the future about the age in which he lived i'll be damned i grumbled <laughs> in a voice that seemed choked with dust have i done a rip van winkle nobody answered but one of my elephants gave me a wise look out of his piggy eye so there's a bit of comedy in here um, in the description, which I really, really enjoy. Um, but it's just so efficient. This is the sort of thing that uh, is done all the time in science fiction stories of this period, where you've got a character who goes from our whatever present it was when the story was written to the future. Um, and there's always some lame excuse as to why it happened. Sometimes it was the dental dental surgery gone wrong. <laughs> Sometimes it, it it's like this is somebody being executed. Um, and that's just something that needs to be done in order for us to get from there to here, right? And invoking Rip Van Winkle is the first hint that this is metafictional, right? He is aware of science fiction and it comes up again and again. Um, we've got uh, 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 like the bulk of the story is 
um, dropping a little bit of information about their world, which is very well done. You know, the, these elephants don't think like us. They don't react like we do. Um, but also conversations with elephants who've read, uh, oh, a, an elephant who has read a lot of human fiction. And as the character, as the elephant character describes the plots, we, along with our main character, who we should talk about his name, um, figure out what book he's talking about. It's like, oh, I know that book. <laughs> and then right. at the end, uh, he does a little thing again. Listen to this. Last page. Um, the elephants had mistaken Tarzan, Sherlock Holmes, and Robinson Crusoe for real persons and true stories. And there had been so much science fiction. Some of it must have come in the way of elephant scholars' fancy. Some of it must have come in the way of the elephant scholars. Fancies of H.G. Wells or Stanley G. Weinbaum or E. Ando Binder, and they had taken that for truth. And then, this is like him, that's him talking about it on the planet Venus. This is an epic, Eric, in a page, just a few, like eight pages long. It's an epic. And it's so cute and fun. I love it. <laughs> I'm glad you do. I, I found it highly amusing. Um, I do enjoy it. But I found that the story itself was... It's cliche. Awfully, it's, it's right, awfully predictable. What I admire that info dump where he reads off the tablet, you know, this is who we have here. Uh, very efficient. That, so efficient. As, as the writing goes, in terms of the genre of science fiction, it handles the requirements uh, very, very well. However, I have a lot of questions about it. And what I find what makes this, to me, a compelling story is that I want to think about, wait mm. a minute, how what am I supposed to do with that? For example, it is clear when we are told that the rockets are going to Venus in the very beginning that eventually our guy is going to have to go to Venus. Um, it is clear that from the editorial comment um, that you know a rule a world ruled by elephants that we will not have any surprise when we find out that they are in a world ruled by elephants. So I kind of ask myself, am I supposed to be surprised by these things? Or am I supposed to, in fact, since this is cliche, to use your characterization, am I supposed to recognize these right away as I recognize which stories are being referenced, mm -hmm. um, you know, Kona, Tarzan and so on? Mm -hmm. um, am I supposed to recognize these things and go, aha, so now we are looking at these with a somewhat distanced, therefore somewhat knowing, or perhaps even ironic eye. Then usually when somebody wakes up in the future or is transported or when some alien comes down here, the contrast in origin of the, the viewpoint character and the world in which he lives gives us a satire that lets us understand something about our own world. In the case of this story, I don't think that we're getting much satire about 1940s America. I don't think we're getting much 
comment about capitalism. I don't think that there's much of a satire here about anything other than the genre of science fiction. And so, see, here's the problem. This is 20, this, you know, we're well into the 21st century. This story was published over 80 years ago. Mm. If I were a 12-year-old boy reading this and knew that I was, you know, he was the last man on earth. Oh, are we going to find a woman? And he talks a little bit about, you know, I, I remember now there was not going to be any women. And I remembered how I loved, you know, I liked seeing them. And they were so, they smelled good and they looked good. Sometimes, sometimes you could you kiss could, them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Excuse me. Exactly. So it sounds like it's a story meant for a 14-year-old or a 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's not. Maybe it's an adult who knows darn well that you could make it sound like a story for a 12 or 14 year old. And he's commenting on how silly and how how young and innocent that is. So at the end, I'd like to pick up from where you were reading. Mm -hmm. Right. He says he's talking about science fiction. And by the way, I am very impressed that. Whoever this is, let's say Wellman recognizes that Tarzan and Robinson Crusoe can and Sherlock Holmes can all be seen as examples of science fiction. Right. Right. Because the the kind of extrapolation into a world that never existed, that's exactly what goes on in those books. It's it's very smart. Mm -hmm. And I point that out because if this is very smart, then maybe we shouldn't read this straight like a 14 year old. We should read it as a metafiction that's satirizing Science fiction is a genre. So he goes on. And there had been so much science fiction. Some of it must have come in the way of the elephant scholars, fancies of H.G. Wells or Stanley G. Weinbaum or Indo Binder. And, of course, Weinbaum and Binder. Binder, by the way, is another pseudonym for two brothers. Right. Um, e and O. Exactly. Um, Weinbaum and Binder, unlike Wells, didn't publish books. They only were in the science fiction magazines. Mm-hmm. And they'd taken that, that is the elephants had taken that science fiction for the truth, had thought people had actually taken flight, flight from catastrophe. This is a thought going through the mind of the narrator. Mm-hmm. Once he has landed on Venus, this, the, the, the star, the, the, the evening, star, evening star, the goddess of love mm-hmm. had taken flight from catastrophe. I groaned aloud. Maybe he groaned aloud, not at. what the elephants had done, but at the pun he had just made, Mm. flight from catastrophe, somebody chuckled. In other words, someone is maybe reading his thoughts. I sprang up and whirled around. I love that pun. He whirled around, W-H-I-R-L-E-D, but he's now in a new world. Mm -hmm. He whirled around. A girl, not a woman, of course, because this is 1940s and it's meant for 14-year-old boys to read. A girl had come up from behind a clump of palm-like trees. She wore brief, becoming garments that seemed spun out of silver wire. A dark fillet caught her blonde hair back from a lively, lovely face. In the hollow of one arm, she carried a weapon like a rifle. When my eyes met hers, she smiled. Hello, stranger. She greeted me. Yep. 
So this is so obviously a self-indulgent fantasy, a a wish-fulfillment fantasy, Mm -hmm. that part of me says, a, a strong part of me says, this whole thing is meant as a commentary on how much we really, really want the fantasies of science fiction to be real, yep. even though they are clearly juvenile. I get to play with my elephants. Yep. Why do those three elephants want the guy to escape? There is so much in here that is illogical. For instance, they happen to have this rocket ship ready to go. The elephants have been experimenting with rocketry, and they have built this rocket. But the reason they want him to, to ride the rocket is that they have built a rocket that is too small for an elephant and too weak for an elephant. If that's the case, and if they knew that, why did they build that rocket? You know, it makes no sense whatsoever. But it makes a lot of sense if all you want is to get out of this crummy world and into one where a a powerful woman uh, will be a girl to you and immediately say, hello, stranger. Yeah, she speaks English. So, How convenient. Of, of, well, of course. And so do the elephants. Yeah. That's why I think these are perhaps Indian elephants. Because, you know, this is 19, this is 1940. It's before the British Empire has dissipated and fragmented. And so we know that elephants can speak English because um, they have they learned English this. commands. Yeah. They do. In fact, we know that because they are, we are said that they were our smartest servants. And he says, but I saw not a mahout in sight. Right. And a mahout is the Hindi word for an elephant herder. Mm-hmm. So these are Indian elephants. Um, I noticed, by the way, by 1940, people already knew that elephants had a matriarchal society. And yet here, they're talking man to man. All of the elephants are male. right? So I can't help but think that this story is one, whether it was intended to be or not, um, is really a very knowing satire, knowing in having a deep understanding of what really constitutes science fiction, like Tarzan and Sherlock Holmes and Robinson Crusoe and H.G. Wells, and saying, and that's also true for Stanley G. Weinbaum or Ando Binder, because the stuff in the pulps really embodies that. You readers just haven't really been thinking about it. And do please think about what it really means. It's great fun for satisfying the adolescent in us all. Um, I think what he's saying is when you read one of those crappy genre magazines, there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.